Welcome to a special DOD to AEC episode of Inspiring People and Places, where throughout the month of November, we are interviewing veterans across the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industries. As always, our goal is to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. But more importantly this month, our goal is to highlight career paths of those who served in our military and continue to make an impact after military service in our industry. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business focused on advising public and private clients with strategy, planning, program management, and construction management support services. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, Inspiring People in Places, we are continuing our November Salute to Service, or as we call it, DOD to AEC episodes. And I am honored to have on our show today my classmate for Country and Corps from the uh, West Point class of 2004. And we're going to hit the development industry. He is the COO at Victory Base, and we'll get into what Victory Base is. John Sharkey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to have you, John. In November, we're we're highlighting stories of uh, active duty members that have kind of transitioned off active duty and found a career path in the architect, engineering, construction, and development industry. So, I want to talk about your career path. I think it's been over ten years now uh, since you got off active duty to Victory Base. But why don't we start with what Victory Base is and what you're doing for them right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Victory Base itself is a business that really does salute back to veterans and active duty service members in a lot of fa- in a lot of ways. Um, really, it was founded to improve the financial future uh, of of active duty service members and other folks that are very predictably transient. Uh, and what I mean by that is is we have real estate communities and are building a network of real estate communities that are outside military bases. And those communities have something a little bit special about them. Not only uh, uh, do they house a majority or close to a majority of military folks that are in it, they're not on the base, but we allow and offer the residents an opportunity to invest into our business, which is, you know, in, in a roundabout way, invests into the portfolio of stabilized homes that we own. And so the reason we do that is, you know, being in the military ourselves was it was hard to go out and buy a house and invest. I say, man, it was, you know, we were out there protecting the American dream, but we couldn't participate in the American dream because Uncle Sam was moving us from one duty station to the other. So by the time we bought a house and we had to leave that particular area for a different duty station, We'd have to either sell the house or hold on to it. If you sold the house, all the profit or equity growth that you would have would have been wiped away in transaction costs with realtor fees and VA processing fees. So we noticed that as a problem and wanted to tackle that problem head on by giving them a a way to invest into the real estate with which they they live. And and, uh, we did this through through Victory Base Corporation. That's awesome. And how big is Victory Base now? I don't know so, how you how you measure we, we, size number yeah, of communities. So yeah, no, absolutely. So so Victory Base Corporation uh, itself has two stabilized real estate assets. 
Um, one of them is a is a 48 home community in South Carolina, and then we've got another asset that's in upstate New York, outside of uh, Fort Drum. That's that's 50 three bed two bath units. So so we've got that in our stabilized portfolio on a on a, a completely different entity that's separate from the investable. You know where residents invest in is um, a real estate development company that that owns two assets that are under development. So we've got one in Arizona and one in Florida. And so the Arizona property is 26.6 acres. We're trying to get well over 200 units on that particular site. And, and then the Florida asset is 134 single family home lots. And so we're going we're going, you know, that's that's another asset that we currently have. Gotcha. I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole because I could of of all of the developer had developer investor questions I could ask. Sure. Um, but the the overarching is active duty members and other transient professionals they tend to move around a lot and your options are buy and risk not recouping your investment or not building equity potentially become a landlord but you become a remote landlord or you just absentee rent on- landlord absentee. or what we call accidental landlord. Yeah, there you go. accidentally shoot. I'm underwater in this house. I got to hold on to it. Yeah, so that's another option, but I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, or you're going to rent off of the economy. And basically, your solution is a way that you're renting off the economy, but also having the option to to buy into the communities that, that you're renting in. Is that 100%? Am I summarizing that right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it really creates a new category where it says, hey, and and we we really base it off of something called the ownership mindset. And so when you own something, we all know it's almost inherent human knowledge that when you own something, you treat it better than when if you don't own it. You know, a lot of people like to use the rental car, um, uh, drive it like a rental car. You know, you're going to drive it like you don't like you don't own it. Or do you ever vacuum out a rental car before you return it to the to Avis or Hertz or whatever? Like the answer is like, no, it's not your car. You don't care about it. You just rented it. You just used it. It served a purpose. And rental housing can often feel like that. And so what we tried to do was create this ecosystem where, you know what? We're going to give you an opportunity to live in a very high quality, brand new house. For the most part, we, we try to buy new new housing product to be competitive. Um, and build new housing project for that matter, and and give you an opportunity to invest in it. And and not only are you going to invest in it, so you feel like you own it, uh, but you're also going to have an opportunity to to treat it like it's a house that you own. And you're gonna and basically what I'm getting to is we created a, an app, and it's based around what we coined resident based property management. So we give the residents an opportunity to fix problems, the first call that they're not, they're not going to just call the landlord and say, hey, fix this problem for me. We've teed it up so they know exactly who to call for maintenance issues. They have smart door locks and smart, a smart home technology that allows them to care for their home like they own it. And in a roundabout way, they have some stake in it too. So altogether, we're trying, trying to create this new category where you can get ownership and not be tied to the real estate and take your investment with you when you get PCS or when you decide to move. That's great. I, I love the model. Very innovative. How does 
competition with privatized military housing, as an example, stack up to you? I think you have mm -hmm. a, a greater value proposition, but I'm sure that's your that's your competitor in most markets. You know, we we look at at any housing option as a competitor. You know, you there's still going to be people that want to buy houses. They think they're the next, you know, real estate Donald Trump, and they're going to be like the best way to do it is to buy. And so you'll never change that market segment. There's going to be people that that buying is just way out of their wheelhouse, and they're going to be renters or on base housing folks. Which, by the way, I just see it very similar. Like you live on base, you're basically renting from the military as your landlord, and the and the privatized uh, right. companies that that own those housing uh, houses. And then, so there's going to be folks that also don't even want to look at the opportunity to invest in a victory-based corporation in victory-based corporation because it's a little bit too complex for them. But that's really our goal, right? Is to to, to lay it out make it easy, make the decision like this is a better option than living on on-base housing or renting from some other, you know, landlord. The competition, I would say, is, you know, you could list and we've done it many a times. What are the pros and cons of living on on-base housing versus not? You've got some issues with on-base housing. You know, there's there's not an unlimited budget. There's been complaints about mold and mildew and lead paint and all these other things. So really, the the I call it antiquated. Our competition in on-base housing is totally antiquated. And ours is we're trying to buy fresh, brand new, new styles. And so a little bit more attractive for the young families that we're targeting. Awesome. So let's let's go back. How you've been at Victory Base? How Four long? years. Yeah. Four years. And Four years. Get, we really got, got started there when you were first when they were first starting up, right? 100%. Yeah, there was no real real estate assets. So we went from really nothing to the four major real estate assets that we own in, in the different entities. And so it's been it's been quite a ride, especially since, you know, COVID was in the middle of that. And we've had to pivot and change and adjust along the way. So I, I want to get to some some leadership lessons learned there. But because sure. we're highlighting veteran transitions, I want you to talk through your process of of thinking about staying on active duty or getting off active duty. I know you went to grad school. Talk to us about, you know, that transition from career military to what's next. Yeah, no, no, that's a great it's a great question and I know it's on a lot of people's minds especially since we're coming up on the 20 year mark for and so I see a lot of our friends that are saying, "Man, I'm I'm retiring in 2024." It's 20 years after we got commissioned. And um, so it's, it's definitely a timely, timely type of question and something that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, I, I decided in, back in about 2010 that I was going to get out after I served as a company commander. And I was in Korea at the time. And it was a tough decision because I had just gotten um, approval to be a professor at West Point. Uh, in the math department. And so I got a phone call and, and I was in Korea and they were calling calling from West Point, New York. And and uh, so it took a while for us to get on the phone together to say, hey, you've been approved. We're going to slate you to become a professor. And I said, man, that is a great gig. You know what I mean? Like I could go to grad school for a year, a uh, year and a half, two years, and then spend three years at West Point. But the, at that point, I would own, you know, owe more to my um, commitment and would have to go. And so 
it was a very, very difficult decision. But eventually, at the end of the day, it was like, go teach at West Point, become a career soldier, or get out and, and try my hand on So I said, you know, I'm going to stick through my company command. And I decided to get out because I really wanted a new adventure at that point. And they were going to, you know, part of it was, hey, you got to go be deploy and I was going to go be get general's aid. So it was a little bit more complex than just going to, to teach at West Point. But ultimately, I decided to get out because I wanted a new adventure. And, and boy, man, an adventure it was, you know, I went to grad school, decided to do a two year MBA at Cornell. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a park fellowship there, which was really a, a a uh, a full tuition scholarship so i did use part of my gi bill and whatnot uh, for for housing expenses and things like that but at the end of the day it was just a great entree into the business world and then once i jumped in it was you know feet to the fire you got to start making an impact right away so you have to work your way through some similar challenges albeit different in nature than you did in the military but it's been it's been a blast the the mba was it focused in real estate it was finance and real estate. Yeah. So the way the Cornell did it, they've got a hotel school and it's not really just a hotel school, but I think that's where it was founded as a hotel school, but the economics and finance around hoteliers and, and that particular business. And so they it was adjacent to the business school, but it had lots of graduate level courses in real estate finance. And so I wound up, I think I qualified for a minor in graduate studies in real estate, but I never wound up getting the paperwork signed, but but I did all the classes and the prereqs for it. So I got an MBA, but then did about six graduate level classes in real estate. And so that's where I wanted to spend my time and focus was in real estate finance and investment and development. So then talk to us about your first foray into real estate. Yeah, I, I was in, in your neck of the woods in in the great state of Pennsylvania in the great city of brotherly love there in Philadelphia, which is where... I was born and raised outside of Philadelphia before my family had moved to Northern New Jersey when I was in fourth grade. But I uh, I had a lot of family back there, and I cast a wide net within the real estate industry and landed at at CBRE, which was an awesome experience because what a great company that was. Uh, I think they're they them along with maybe JLL are the largest real estate services companies in the world. Um, and you could really, you know, sink your teeth into um, a, a big market and be part of a big team. And so I sold multifamily investment real estate on behalf of clients that were, you know, small private owners, family offices. I was part of a team. And so being the new guy, I got to work on deals that were, you know, larger like REIT deals and, and large family office and private company deals, 400 units, 300 units. And I did actually focus in South Jersey in, in, in your neck of the woods there. And talk to, you know, some people contemplate real estate and they, you know, the whole industry revolves from my my perspective on deal flow. And right. in the broker business, it's, it you know, I know that there's some level of stability with base salaries, but talk to us about, you know, what it's like being a broker and and knowing that your your paycheck is not coming from uncle sam every two weeks but yeah you're, you're trying to you're trying to close close business yeah that was it was really a, a tough lesson to learn because you get started off on like when, when you join the way they did it was just you get a very small small salary so enough to like you know eat like rice and beans and then but eventually you're going to go to zero and you're going to be 100 commission based and that really is only maybe a 12 or 24 month thing. 
before it's like, hey, you got to eat what you kill, man. I mean, like get out there and find new business and eat and, and eat what you kill. And so a little bit of that helps when you join a team because there are going to be more mature, seasoned real estate, commercial real estate investment sales professionals that have been doing it for 20 or 30 years. They have deal flow themselves where they've got clients that they know are going to be selling their particular real estate assets over time. So you can kind of work on their deals and get a, get a small piece of those deals. But really where, where you make a living is by generating your own clientele, your own book of business, and being able to bring in real estate. And that requires sort of the blocking and tackling of sales. And so sales is uh, putting yourself out there, doing a lot of cold calling doing a lot of meetups, having more coffees than you can even, you know, <laughs> shake a stick at, if you will. Lunches, networking meetings, everything so that you can get your face out there. And then at the same point, you've got to execute and prove that you can uh, be the be the best out there. So you've got to understand their product, know how to sell it, know how to underwrite it, know what value is, know what's happening in the market. So it requires a lot of just being out there and, and executing a lot of sales activity, which can be challenging for a lot of people because they're just not naturally able to do it, which I wasn't, you know, it's sort of a learned skill being able to pick up the phone and call somebody you've never met before and ask them to give you business. Yeah. So you went from CBRE and, and I remember, I, I think we were in a veteran networking group for real estate and you were yeah. like, Hey, I'm, I'm kicking around this thing. I might, might move the family to Vermont. Yeah. Yeah. What so it all happened through military network, really. I was in CBRE and I'm, I, like I said, man, more coffees than you could shake a ticket. And so I met tons of people. And through the West Point network, uh, there was there was a 1965 grad named Nick, Nick Principe, who was in the real estate business with Devonwood Investors. And he had said to me, hey, John, you know, we're, we're doing this big project, two million square foot development. And we need somebody up there to kind of run, help run the project or really be the staff of this large project. Um, and I said, that's crazy. My, bro my brother lives up in Vermont um, and, and it happened to be in the same city in Burlington, not that there's many cities up there. But I, we, we stayed in touch. And when it was time for me wanting to be, get into more, you know, sink your teeth into real estate and development rather than sales, I called him up and he said, yeah, we're actually closing on, on the property. We've, or we have just closed on it. And now we're ready to submit our development plans for the 2 million square feet. It's going to get approved. There had to be a vote. It was going to be this big deal. So anyway, the, 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 the whole project had materialized enough that they could bring me on. And, and so it was sort of an easy decision because we got to move near family and my kids were the same age as my brother's kids. And here was this very large project up in in Burlington that was going to really be a foray into a new into a new um, type of career within the real estate development field and uh, th that's what we did we moved on up there and we stayed up there for four years the project was sold to Brookfield uh, eventually um, and then after COVID you know I had left at that point but after COVID it was sold back to the original developers and now they're building you know 400 odd student housing apartments up there it's it was a, it was a, it was very interesting and and fun time. And your job was essentially development manager. 
You know, no, not really. It was a small team. So it was four of us there. The the head principal was in his, you know, approaching 70 years old. Nick was like 75. There was another guy that was like 60, 65. So for me, it was like I did almost everything that they didn't want to do. Right. So it was, it was in a great way to, for me to sort of learn the business from the ground up. I did tons of financial underwriting financial models. I was part, I, I, I call it like government liaison work. I mean, we submitted grants for energy, solar energy, EV. So I would run all these grant processes. And then we still had a mall. So we, we, had, we had this like little mall that we were tearing down that had all these retail spaces in it from Sun, you know, like these traditional <laughs> like models, Starbucks, Five Guys, we had local tenants in there. So I had to manage all of the leasing activity as well. Not only like manage their current contracts and renewals, but also like, hey, by the way, you're going to get kicked out once we tear this thing down. Do you want to renew for full price? You know, so, so I did leasing activity, financial underwriting, development, and, and pretty much anything in between. And I, I want to highlight to the audience like, uh, a lot of people think that you get off active duty, you get a job somewhere, and now you're you're just continuing the career path. But there's a bit of a, a learning curve. It's a new industry. And the best way to I found to learn is get yourself in positions where you're going to get exposed to as much stuff as possible. Because by getting exposed to it all, you start to learn what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And you can start to almost create your own personal yeah. identity and value proposition in the industry. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I do a lot of mentoring through American corporate partners, and I've probably been through five or six different mentees at this point. And I love doing it because veterans, when they're transitioning now, or active duty folks, when they're transitioning out to become, you know, work in the civilian sector, you know, the, the, there's some kind of Kool-Aid that they're drinking that thinks like that folks are they're going to go in and make a million dollars in year one and they're going to find the perfect thing. And it like, I've never, ever seen it happen. There's an element of struggle and it goes back. I think when any soldier in history in any nation has ever transitioned to come back to real life, there's, there's a, it's a, it's a challenging transition. And so I warn folks of that when I'm, when I'm doing these, these mentor mentee relationships that you're probably going to land in the wrong spot on your first job. That's what yeah. I said. It's like likely you're not going to hit a bullseye. So you so you you've got to be wary of that and know that when you're when you're out there looking for something, you do it in a fashion that says, I got to be flexible here, right? Like the first 3 4 weeks and I know, oh my god, John, I just made a huge mistake. Why did I why did I join this company or whatever? Is probably going to happen. So I like to try and ease the blow uh, for folks like that, that that are going into new experiences in the civilian sector. And 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 I think the lesson there is apply yourself anyway to whatever you know, whatever you land. Make the best decision with the information you have or the opportunities that you're presented. Apply yourself, learn, and and be okay knowing like, hey, uh, this wasn't the end all be all. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just just being flexible. Just being flexible, you know. So I, I agree with that hundred percent. So you 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 got all that experience. Talk to us about you know from there you you land at Victory Base. I think it was a startup at the time when you got recruited there. It was um, yeah. 
Talk to us about some of the lessons you learned from a leadership standpoint in the military that have allowed you to apply it to this small but growing startup company that you've been at and and you've risen to the level of COO now. Yeah. Well, the, the blocking and tackling that the military teaches you are just absolutely vital and important. You know, things I still struggle with is just showing up on time. Sometimes I'll be a little a minute or too late. So I got to, you know, remind myself, hey, this wasn't how I was raised in the military, but just the discipline of sort of setting that weekly cadence and understanding where your impact and value is on, on a, a disciplined schedule is is vital so um, an, another key part that you know we always have room for improvement on is making sure what you're doing every single task that you do on a day-to-day basis dovetails into the broader mission you know there's so many times when you can get distracted by shiny objects and shiny things and new business models and new real estate deals and just anything that takes your eyes away. I mean, especially think about social media these days on how distracting it can be, but really just tracing your day-to-day activities and tasks back up to the broader mission. And, and when you can do that, you're going to have a productive day. You know, So, so I try to do, always remember the key mission and the core mission at the beginning. Yeah, that's a great, you know, nesting, nesting those activities is, yeah. and I think, real estate by its nature, anything that has some level of deal flow or sales component to it, where you're, where you're seeking new opportunities or you're seeking new investors, it's kind of easy to be shiny object chasing because you don't know what that could lead to. Yeah. Right? And when you, when you, my lesson in this was when you come into the world and you're, you, you're kind of training yourself to be a salesperson or to be more, you know, I think military were, were raised to be operators, right? Like lead and manage the people and the mission that's, that's in front right. of you. In the private sector, so much is around growth and new business and new opportunity that you have to train yourself to be aware and attentive to where that comes from. And I think that when you become too aware and attentive, you become distracted by it all because it's yeah. like everything <laughs> could could be an opportunity. Yeah. So I appreciate that that comment and and really always coming back to that weekly and daily cadence of like, what's the most important thing I can do for the mission today or this week or this month or this quarter? Yeah, exactly. And if you can tie it back, then then you're doing pretty good. But if but if you just spend a whole bunch of day a whole bunch of your day in the, in in what I call the whirlwind, I forget which book it was. Mick Chesney was the author, but but he says the whirlwind. I mean, we all have it, right? It's just you get caught up in the whirlwind of the business of these little tiny tasks that'll just eat your lunch if you're not like if you don't just set the time afraid just to focus on the on the major mission. You'd be like, I'm exhausted. I've spent all day working, you know, and you get home and you're like, what did I really do today? Well, I just kept the whirlwind alive, you know? And so if you don't separate some time to, to focus on the mission too and, and dovetail all, all your particular tasks into the main mission, you're going you're gonna to be frustrated probably at the end of the day. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. 
We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. I want to switch gears because you brought up a book. Talk to us about maybe the top three books on your reading list or, or your most recommended book. Yeah, no, no, I, I've got a lot of books that I've read over the years that I've found impactful. I would say one of the, and this might be a common question you, or common response you get to this question, but one of the most mind-blowing books that I read was Sapiens by Yuval Harari. That book just changed the way I thought about how we create structures and create institutions and processes and laws in the world. And so that that book hit like the Bill Gates list and the Barack Obama list. And so to me, when I read that, I was just totally mind blown. So over the last 10 years or so, that was probably the biggest, most mind blowing book. It's not necessarily specific to real estate or construction and development, but in general, that was awesome. As a, to real estate, there's a book by William Porview called The Principles of Real Estate that I love and think it's really a, a great book. I always recommend that to, to people. That book is, he's a Harvard professor, but he really breaks down commercial real estate finance in a sort of, you know, chunkable way where you can like understand it from, for, for its true nature. And then last but not least, Donald Miller book called Story Brand that I think is just phenomenal. Uh, and it talks about how to structure your marketing copy, your business, your 60 second pitches with uh, a really simple uh, framework that that really follows the story framework of all TV shows and movies, probably traces back to Shakespeare's time with his, but it, it's an excellent book and I highly recommend it really to anybody. Story, story Brand by Donald Miller. Awesome. How about favorite quote? Yes, that's a good one too. I've got a ton. I, I used to have this little notebook where I wrote down all my favorite quotes, but but the one that that sort of hit me recently is the magic you're looking for is in the work you're avoiding. And so so to me, it's eat the frog mentality. You wake up every morning and you know you should do those things that you want to avoid so that that workout, that quiet time, that planning session, these are the things that that you avoid because they're kind of painful. But I think that's where the magic is. You know, you got to sit down, you got to be deliberate about your day. You have to plan what you're going to eat out, eat that day, plan what you're going how you're going to work out and what you're going to do, what are your top three, et cetera. So I, I love that quote. So the magic you're looking for is in, the, is in the work that you're avoiding. So get to that stuff bright and early, and, and it'll be smooth sailing for the rest of the day if you can knock it out. And, and when you book it, you're less, you're less vulnerable to shiny object syndrome. Yes. So you know what you have to do. And, <laughs> and I love the quote because it is like shiny objects are like, oh, maybe that's the thing that's going to make me a millionaire. Uh, yeah. When in fact, it's like, no, just do what you do really well and really yeah. intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Intentionally focus, get down to the nitty gritty and just do it, man. Because you're probably, if, if you keep on skipping out the hard work, you're going to, you're going to be stuck in a situation where you're not, you don't want to be in it. Yeah. Dinner party for three, three guests dead or alive. Who would you have to your dinner party? Yeah. Yeah. This is a good one. You, you know, I am like enthralled by people that succeed in more than one industry. 
So, so it goes back to good old Philly boy, Ben Franklin, where it's like, this guy was a diplomat. He was an inventor. He was a politician. He started businesses. I mean, like a polymath and, and an expert. So, so my wife makes fun of me because like there was a light bulb that went off my head. Be like, this guy really was amazing. I was reading one of our kids books that came up from school and I was like so enthralled by Benjamin Franklin's story about all of his inventions and the bifocals and the Franklin stove. And he started firefighters associations and libraries. And, and so he would definitely be on the list as Ben Franklin, because I would have like just stories uh, or questions and questions and, and be enthralled by all of his stories. And, and another one that kind of is in the same exact vein is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I look at this guy, he was like a poor kid from Austria that became not only like the best bodybuilder of his time, but probably of all time. So that requires like a ridiculous amount of skill and focus and energy. And then when he transitioned out of that, he became a millionaire in apartment building investing yeah. while trying to make it as a, as a leading star in movies, which he did. And then he became like the number one blockbuster paid guy and then he said, you know, let me give a shot at politics and became the governor of like the fifth largest economy in the world. So Arnold's definitely making the list on, on my dinner table. And I'm sure him and Ben Franklin would have a lot of good discussions together. And then another guy that that really impresses me is Novak Djokovic, the tennis player. Just by his nature of intensity, I would just be very curious as to what he would choose to eat at dinner. You know, <laughs> how long he would stay? Would he would he have a beverage? I mean, this guy is so intense and I like tennis and I play tennis and follow it. So this guy just has this next level mentality and thought process. So those are my three, man. I hope, I hope that was a good answer. Those are great answers. And like, shockingly, we're, we're 120 podcasts in, neither Arnold Schwarzenegger or Ben Franklin have come up. And I... I am enthralled by both of their careers. I'm listening to, yeah. to Schwarzenegger on Tim Ferriss' podcast right now. And oh, nice. the guy has lived in like 10 lives and 30 I years. I know. I don't even know how he does it. So anyway, I'm, I'm just absolutely impressed by those folks. But, but yeah. I agree. All right. What do you want on your tombstone? I'm I'm going to take a page out of Norm Schwarzkopf's book here. He said something of this nature. I might, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, on my tombstone, and by the way, he's buried at West Point. I haven't seen his his tombstone yet, but I remember reading about it and said, I'd like my tombstone to say that uh, I was a good soldier who served his country and loved his family. And so I thought like at the, the bottom core of it, it was very simple things. By the way, Ben Franklin's tombstone, I think, says he was a printer or something like that, like one of the first businesses that he started. So something simple, but puts the first things first. You know, the the groups that I'm most proud of is just being a family man and, and my family. So I would like to think that my family would put on my, put on my tombstone that, that I was a good person and a good father and a good family man. And then, you know, any chosen profession to that, that I did it well and I, I did it honorably. And, and that's that's probably about it. Nothing fancy, but just led a good, honorable life uh, and was a family man. I love it. Close us out in the words of Andy Reid, time's yours. What do you want to leave with our, our audience? 
I would say about a year and a half ago, I went to one of these little summits and military veteran summits, and I, and I watched Alex Gorski speak. He's he's in New Jersey too, but CEO of Johnson and Johnson, and he said, "Man, take time to coach." And he coached his son's lacrosse team. And think about it: a guy rising to become the CEO of a company as large as Johnson and Johnson. During his career trajectory, he had took time to split off and coach his his son's lacrosse team, I think it was. And and by the way, he has this funny story that he told about like some of those lacrosse players that he had coached years ago are now working at Johnson and Johnson. And they when they see him, they say, Hey, what's up, coach? And he says that's one of the biggest like uh, compliments he could receive. And so, you know, I, I, I coach my daughter's soccer team. It takes up a few hours on Saturday and, and a few hours during the week here and there. But it's a way to kind of give back, teach those intangibles to kids um, and, and step up, get parents to volunteer and really create a great atmosphere for, for the kids. So I would say if, if you're going out there in, into the world, you're going to be busy you're probably not going to regret that time that you coach your kids team or a youth program or something like that. And then just to close that part out, I know um, I was just talking to Mike Stedman, who works with the Flawless Acceleration Program that I'm part of, and he's been coaching uh, and doing a great job. He said all of his clients, me me included, were um, coaching their kids teams. Everybody's busy as can be, but we all found time to coach. And he goes, I found that like pretty, pretty remarkable. And so Anyway, I that that's kind of how I would leave it. Um, awesome. Yeah. John, congrats on your success at Victory Base and and the whole career journey. Thanks so much for taking the time to share share a bit of your path with us. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. And then I would just give one one little shout out to Victory Base. You know, we're we're you can check us out through our website. Any individual that's looking to to partake in a business like this, there's a little invest now button. Where, where you know, you can go through our WeFunder campaign and invest into Victory Base. We're kind of just getting started with that. But if you have any any questions or want to get to know me, I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn or and so you can hit me up there. Awesome, and we will make sure that we we connect your website and your LinkedIn profile in the show cool. notes. So awesome, hey, thank you, thanks, John. It, man. it was a lot of fun. Loved having you. All right, buddy. Thanks. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.